Our second, our gospel text this morning is from Matthew 25, uh, 1 to 13. I'll invite you to listen for the word that God has for all of us gathered here uh, today. Uh, and Jesus is teaching the disciples and the crowd and tells another one uh, of his parables. Uh, he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, look, look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, oh no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. All right. I'm going to start by saying, I don't like this parable. <laughs> All right, the bridegroom has arrived. A celebration awaits, a feast of joy, of laughter and delicious food. But, but what's this? Uh, some have missed out on the wedding reception. Oh, dear. And from an individual perspective, this is lamentable. It's regrettable for everyone involved, for those who weren't ready and miss out on the celebration. Uh, for the wise virgins too, I suppose. Did they miss their companions as they feasted and danced the night away? Did they worry about them? Did, they, did their absence mar the perfection of this celebration? And what about Christ? What about the bridegroom? Does he miss those foolish virgins? Does their absence irk or annoy him? They were on the guest list, after all. There's an empty table of five over in the corner, an empty table staring everyone in the face because these five virgins, they RSVP'd, but they were not ready in time for the presentation of bride and groom and the procession of the wedding party. So yeah, this story has always pricked me a bit because I'm, too all, I'm all too aware that I might just as likely be one of the foolish invitees as not. I'm well-intentioned, certainly, but I know my weaknesses, I know myself all too well. Like the foolish virgins, like the disciples with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his death, all Jesus asked of them was that they stay awake and pray with him. Well, like them, I'm liable to doze off, to mess up, to fall down, and miss out that moment, the moment when the bridegroom arrives. 
This kind of anxiety about being ready and alert uh, can create all kinds of neuroses. Uh, I'll never be good enough, I'll never measure up, I'll never make it, I won't be ready. Like the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, we all run around frantic about being late, about not being good enough, afraid we'll be left behind. This parable of the, the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish, plays into that uh, left behind anxiety, uh, not measuring up, not being ready. So I think it's helpful, I think it's helpful, if we take a look at the Old Testament text alongside this uh, parable. The New Testament admonition to be ready is much like the Old Testament encouragement to be righteous. In the wilderness, Israel receives the law. And in his parting message, uh, Joshua encourages Israel to choose life. Uh, well, no, that was Moses, sorry. Moses, in his parting message, encourages Israel to choose life. Now, uh, later in the Old Testament text here, Israel is in the promised land now. And Joshua, in his parting address with them, again presents a choice before the people of Israel. Uh, choose this day whom you will serve. And Israel declares, oh, we will serve the Lord. Correct, right answer. Only Joshua's response differs from that of Moses. Having been in the promised land, maybe Joshua sees and knows exactly how fickle the people's hearts are. We will serve the Lord, says the people. You cannot serve the Lord, says Joshua. But we will, Israel assures him. All right, says Joshua. You are witnesses against yourselves. Don't blame me, he seems to be saying, when you are overrun, when you lose the promised land and are carried off into exile. Throughout Israel's history, their cycle of faithful beginning, followed by infidelity and fallenness, plays out over and over again, with the prophets calling them back each time, back to that relationship with God, their Savior, who offers reconciliation and reunion. This plays over and over again in Israel's history, but I want to be clear, this is not only Israel's pattern, <laughs> this is a human pattern. And we all do this over and over again. We start off either as individuals or organizations with good intentions and we start off strong and somewhere along the way we fall asleep. We run out of oil and we fail. Uh, perhaps uh, the scribes and teachers of Jesus' day already knew what Reformed theologians came to name as the first use of the law. The first use of the law is to convict us of our sin by showing us what righteousness looks like. Uh, and by seeing that and by knowing what righteousness looks like, we become aware that we predictably and consistently fall short. We fall short of fulfilling the law. As Joshua puts it, you cannot serve the Lord. You cannot live up to the law. You are frail and fallen and the flesh is weak. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <clears throat> From an individual standpoint, this parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids is problematic. But for us, 
there is good news here. Uh, for the world, there is good news here. And the good news is the bridegroom comes anyway. Hallelujah. In the prophet Isaiah and the Song of Solomon and elsewhere in the Hebrew Scriptures, the bridegroom, Israel's covenanted partner, is the promised Messiah of God who will come and restore the chosen people of God, who will wed himself to her in covenant love. This is cause for celebration for those invited to the feast, for those who make it to the reception, and for those who do not. Um, It's, it's a cause for celebration for those who are there, but also for those who only know about this celebration from, here, from hearsay and by second and third hand accounts. And I'll tell you something, we are all those people who are hearing about this celebration second and third accounts. None of us were there, but we all uh, still gain the benefits of this covenanted marriage. This is one of those marriages that blesses not only bride and groom, but all those in their orbit. Whether you're there for the wedding celebration itself, or you only know them as an old familiar couple many, many years later, their union and their marriage enriches you and it enriches the world. This is a marriage that makes the world a better place and gives good folk oil for their lamps. The bridegroom has come, and whether you recognize it at the time and enter the celebration or not, uh, the world is made a better place. Life is worth living, and the offer for renewed hope and transformed selves is available for foolish and wise alike. Yeah, I wish we'd all been ready, but this good news doesn't rely on us or our ability. This is God's doing. The marriage has been consecrated whether we were there for dinner or not. It reminds me of a story that Nelson Mandela tells. Uh, Mandela, of course, spent years in prison in apartheid South Africa as a member of the African National uh, Congress and as a, a revolutionary. Nelson Mandela, when he was released, um, when he was released, some celebrated and some did not. Mandela tells this story, or told it. Uh, I believe this one's included in his uh, memoir. After becoming president, I asked some of my bodyguard members to go for a walk in town. After the walk, we went for lunch at a restaurant. We sat in one of the most uh, central tables, and each of us uh, was asked what we wanted. And after a bit of waiting, the, wa the waiter who brought our menus uh, appeared. And that, at that moment, uh, Mandela says, I realized that at the table that was right in front of ours, there was a, a single man waiting to be served. And when he was served, I told one of my soldiers, go ask that man to join us. And the soldier went and offered the invitation. The man stood up, took his plate, and sat next to me. And while eating, his hands were constantly shaking. And he didn't, he didn't, didn't it would not at all lift his head uh, from the food. And when we finished, he waved at me without even looking at me. I shook his hand and walked away. 
And so one of the soldiers says to Mandela uh, after this, he said, Madiba, uh, that man must be very sick as his hands wouldn't stop shaking while he was eating. Oh, not at all, says Mandela. Uh, the reason for his tremor is another. Uh, they looked at me weird and uh, I said to them, uh, you see, that man was the guardian of the jail I was locked up in. Often after the torture I was subjected to, I screamed and cried for water, and he came to humiliate me. He laughed at me, and instead of giving me water, uh, he did unspeakable things. He wasn't sick, said Mandela. He wasn't scared. He shook maybe fearing that I, now that I'm president of South Africa, would send him to jail and do the same thing he did to me, torturing and humiliating me. But that's not me. That behavior is not part of my character nor my ethics. Uh, and then Mandela says, minds that seek revenge destroy states, while those that seek reconciliation build nations. Uh, you see, Mandela was a president for those who celebrated his freedom and for those who did not. Uh, as his trial as a young man, or at his trial as a young man, Mandela famously declared, uh, during my lifetime I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all peoples live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal, he said at that trial, which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. After 27 years in prison, Mandela had the opportunity to make that vision a reality. In his long years in prison, instilled in him an extraordinary uh, tolerance and compassion and brought him a sense of perspective that enabled him to see beyond day-to-day -day politics uh, to more ultimate ends. Individual concerns were not his focus. It was a big picture changes to society that he had in mind. Mandela made South Africa a better place and together with Desmond Tutu orchestrated the uh, Peace and Reconciliation Commissions. Uh, when angry young ANC activists called for vengeance, he replied that he, if he could work with enemies who sent him to jail for a third of his life, so could they. Reconciliation was the price of future peace. Men of peace must not think about retribution or recriminations, Mandela said. Courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. When Mandela was freed and as leader of the ANC was eventually elected president of South Africa, some cheered, certainly, some were ready, and entered the celebration, their lamps lit, they joined the wedding feast. Others, those defenders of apartheid, those with much to lose from the change of leadership, they were not ready for the historic change. A change that history judges as a, a bend towards justice and right. They did not celebrate, they could not celebrate at that time, they were not ready. Maybe they never were. Maybe it's only future generations who can see the benefits gained from a racially integrated and equal country and society. 
But you see, this Mandela's leadership in South Africa is one of those marriages, if I can use that metaphor, that blesses not only the bride and groom, but all those in their orbit. Whether you're there for the wedding celebration itself or you only know them as an old familiar couple, much later, their union and their marriage enriches you and it enriches the world. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb, this communion table where we gather and remember Christ's sacrifice uh, for us. But it is also the many images that come together uh, in the act of communion. One of those images is, is the wedding feast. Uh, and as we uh, celebrate together, as we share in communion, I want to remind you all, as you're taking communion today, this is a marriage that makes the world a better place and gives good folks oil for their lamps. Uh, maybe the question shouldn't be, are you ready for the bridegroom? Maybe it should be, are you ready for that opportunity to reach out and love your neighbor? Keep your lamps trimmed and burning, the old spiritual says. Uh, we could use some people with lamps lit to show us the way. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>